This is Condopedia. Here, we talk about everything related to condo law in Ontario, with hopefully some humor mixed in. Welcome everyone to today's Condo Crunch, this or that, the cat or, sorry, to the court or the cat. I was getting myself all messed up on our uh, on our alliteration there. So I hope everyone's having a fantastic day. Our session today, as I said, is all about the cat, uh, some jurisdictional issues, some cost issues, how best to prepare your case if you're going before the cat. Uh, we have some fantastic speakers lined up, as you saw, and I can't wait to dive into the substance. Just a quick reminder of how our condo crunches work. This is our opportunity to try and impart as much information as we can in 30 to 45 to uh, 60 minutes at most. So between half an hour and 60 minutes, we try and make sure we get everything in there. So it means we don't take questions today because again, it's just an information sharing uh, session for us. We do have regular Q&As. So if you're looking for a Q&A type session, stay tuned for one of our upcoming posts so that we can share some Q&A opportunities at that moment in time. So let's jump into the substance of our session here today. We know everybody's very busy and time is tight. So we want to get right to it. I'm going to start off with just a super short intro on on what the cat looks like or what the process is with the cat. And to that end, I'm going to share a, a screen share here from the Condo Authority of Ontario. This is the page where you're going to be going if you're involved in a cat process. You're going to be going in there to, to file things, upload things, to learn about the process. So I thought I would share it as well so you know what you should be looking at uh, when you first get involved with the cat process. It's through the Condominium Authority of Ontario. Then there's a tribunal section itself. So you're going to be going into the tribunal section. But this page is really helpful just to give you, you know, at a glimpse, what does a cat process look like? What am I going to be going through? First and foremost, you're either going to be filing filing a case and delivering a notice, or you're going to be the recipient of a notice. You may be the respondent. If you're the recipient of a notice, you'll be responding. If you're the applicant, you'll be the one filing the case and delivering the notice. You're then going to go through three stages, stage one, two, and potentially three. I shouldn't say you're all going to go through three stages. It depends on whether you resolve your situation at each of the various stages. So stage one, as it says here, is the negotiation process. This is when the two parties try and work through the situation together without the involvement of a third party. So there could be an exchange of dialogue in the uh, tribunal uh, forum and the online dispute resolution forum. So remember, this is all online and exchanges of communications through the online platform to try and resolve the matter. If that doesn't work after one or two weeks, you then move into stage two, the mediation process. In the mediation process, you do get assigned a formal mediator through the Condo Authority Tribunal, who is going to try and work with the parties to see whether or not there's an, an ability to resolve the dispute. That'll last for about one to two weeks. And again, it's all online through the dispute resolution uh, center mechanism, through the online process. You're not dialoguing outside of this process. It's all through uh, communications uploaded into the system. Quick note, and someone's gonna probably talk about this too. Hope I'm not stealing their thunder. You have to make sure you check your emails every day because this is a pretty email intensive system to make sure that you're staying on top of things and that things are moving smoothly through the process. As you can see, the entire thing is supposed to be done in weeks and months as opposed to years. So. Let's assume you've been through negotiation, 
you've been through mediation and you haven't had the opportunity or, or you haven't been able to resolve your situation, you then get put into the tribunal setting. Once you're in a tribunal setting, there are specific rules on how the tribunal is going to proceed uh, with the hearing of the matter. It could be fully online, or sorry, it is all fully online, but it could be in writing, it could be uh, um, orally. Melinda, I think, is going to talk a little bit more about that and how best to present your case. And then at the end, you'll get a decision and there are steps that can be taken after the hearing if you're not pleased with the decision. So that's just an, a very high level macro summary of what the CAT stages are, what the CAT process looks like. So let's jump right in then. We're going to start off with Victoria. I'm going to invite Victoria to join me on screen. And uh, people, pets, and parking. I always talk about people, pets, and parking as the three big topics in condos. So uh, Victoria is going to talk to us about the various jurisdictional issues that we see, which types of issues go directly to the CAT, the fact that these issues could, could bring about bigger issues and all sorts of jurisdictional questions that can come up. So Victoria, I turn it over to you. Thank you, Nancy. Um, so before starting a legal proceeding in relation to any condominium related legal dispute, it is important to consider the following question. Is this matter for the CAT or for a court? Um, so turning first to the CAT's jurisdiction, um, as a starting point, there are limitations as to who a CAT application can be started by and who a CAT application can be started uh, against. In particular, a condominium corporation can start an, a CAT application um, against a uh, an owner occupier such as a tenant or a mortgagee of a unit. Uh, and an owner or mortgagee of a unit can start a, a CAT application against a condominium corporation or an owner occupier or mortgagee of a unit. Um, a purchaser of a unit may also start a CAT, CAT application, um, but only in limited circumstances pertaining to records. And so if your legal proceeding involves a declarant, developer, contractor, consultant, manager, or a party other than a condominium corporation, owner, occupier, mortgagee, or purchaser of a unit, then you're likely uh, not proceeding to the CAT. Now, the CAT's jurisdiction has continued to expand over the past several years, uh, and we anticipate that it will continue to expand in the future. At this time, the CAT has exclusive jurisdiction over the following disputes. So uh, first, uh, disputes related to condominium records. Uh, for example, uh, any disputes relating to records requests by owners or purchasers. Uh, second, disputes relating to alleged unreasonable nuisances, annoyances, or disruptions set out under Section 117.2 of the Condominium Act and its regulations, which include noise, odor, light, vibrations, smoke, and vapor. Uh, third, the CAT also has uh, exclusive jurisdiction over disputes related to provisions in a condominium corporation's declaration uh, bylaws or rules that prohibit, restrict, or otherwise govern these same activities, that being noise, odor, light, vibration, smoke, and vapor. Um, and so, for example, if a condominium corporation has a rule uh, prohibiting smoking altogether on the condominium property and an owner is in breach of that rule but isn't necessarily causing an unreasonable nuisance under section 117.2 of the condominium act the condominium corporation could still start a cat application based on the smoking rule in order to enforce it so uh fourth um the CAT has exclusive jurisdiction over disputes relating to provisions in a condominium corporation's declaration, bylaws, rule, or rules that prohibit, restrict, or otherwise govern uh, pets or other animals, uh, vehicles, parking and or storage, and uh, any other type of nuisance, annoyance, or disruption to an individual. 
With respect to this last uh, sort of catch-all provision, um, the major I note that the majority of uh, condominium declarations and or rules will contain a provision that will say something to the effect of um, no condition or activity uh, shall be allowed on the condominium property that will unreasonably interfere with uh, the use and enjoyment uh, uh, by the other owners um, of the common elements and or their unit. Having such a provision in the condominiums governing documents can be very helpful if a legal dispute does not fall squarely within the CAT's uh, jurisdiction, as it arguably allows a condominium corporation to bring a uh, CAT application in relation to any conduct that is alleged to be a nuisance, annoyance, or disruption. Fifth, um, and finally, the CAT has exclusive jurisdiction um, to deal with disputes related to um, disputes related to a provision in a condominiums governing documents um, that govern the indemnification or compensate or compensation related to any of the uh, previous disputes covered by the jurisdiction of the cat so the cat has extensive jurisdiction over condominium related disputes and so for the majority of condominium disputes you are in all likelihood proceeding to the cat now turning to the court's jurisdiction there are some there are certain circumstances in which you would proceed to court instead of the CAT. Remember that you cannot start a CAT application against a party other than a condominium corporation, owner, mortgagee, or occupier of a unit. And so if you need to start a legal proceeding against a party such as a declarant, consultant, contractor, um, and so on, you're likely proceeding to court. As many of you know, um, Section 134 of the Condominium Act provides jurisdiction to the court to enforce compliance with provisions of the Condominium Act and or the Condominium's Declaration Bylaws or Rules. Uh, or, and rules. But remember, um, the CAT has exclusive jurisdiction over the disputes that I've outlined today. And so a court only has jurisdiction to enforce compliance with the provisions of the Condominium Act and the condominiums governing documents that the CAT otherwise uh, does not have jurisdiction over. So you would need to proceed to court instead of the CAT under the following circumstances. So first, pursuant to Section uh, 117.1 of the Condominium Act, to obtain an order prohibiting a condition or activity on the condominium property that is likely to damage the property or assets or to cause an injury or an illness uh, to an individual. We refer to these as uh, dangerous conditions. Um, so for example, an applicant would likely proceed to court instead of the CAT if uh, a resident is threatening to harm or has harmed others on the condominium property or is acting in a violent manner. Another example is if there is property damage uh, to a unit, such as an infestation of bedbugs or cockroaches, um, or there is a flood within the unit and the owner is refusing to resolve the damage and is also refusing to provide access to the unit. Keep in mind that whether certain legal disputes should proceed to the CAT or court turns on the specific facts of the matter. And so when dealing with this sort of non-compliant behavior, it's really important to consider uh, whether such behavior is actually likely to cause damage or injury under Section 117, or is it more of a nuisance? If such behavior is likely to cause damage or injury under Section 117, one of the Condominium Act, then it likely makes sense to proceed to court. But if it's more so, um, if the if the non-compliant behavior is more so a nuisance, then it likely makes sense to proceed uh, via the CAT. Overall, it's a judgment call in each case based upon the particular facts. 
So you would also go to court in most cases for oppression claims under section 135 of the Condominium Act, namely to obtain an order prohibiting conduct that is or threatens to be oppressive or unfairly prejudicial to the applicant or unfairly disregards the interests of the applicant. So for example, if an owner is dealing with noise and vibration issues from the building common elements and the condominium corporation refuses to acknowledge the problem and or to take any reasonable steps um, to deal with such noise and vibration over an extended period of time, in our view, the owner may have a basis to start a court application under Section 135 because the condominium has arguably uh, unfairly disregarded the interests of the owner. Now, as discussed, the CAT has uh, exclusive jurisdiction over disputes relating to unreasonable disturbances, including noise and vibration. However, if there is evidence to suggest that the party is oppressed under Section 135 relating to an issue that the CAT has exclusive jurisdiction over, the party may have basis uh, to start a court application under Section 135 instead of pr proceeding by way of application to the CAT. Now, having said this, I want to emphasize that the CAT has said that if the fundamental or essential claim falls within the CAT's jurisdiction, then it doesn't matter if there's an incidental oppression claim. The CAT will have jurisdiction um, if the fundamental or essential claim is within the CAT's jurisdiction. And so again, I want to emphasize that these jurisdictional issues can be very tricky and really depend on the facts at play. A final point that I wanted to make with respect to the jurisdiction of the CAT in court is with respect to when a condominium corporation um, is seeking to evict a tenant who is not complying with the provisions of the Condominium Act and or the condominium's governing documents. So prior to the creation of the CAT, a condominium corporation was required to start a court application against a non-compliant tenant under Section 134 of the Condominium Act to uh, first obtain a compliance order enforcing the tenant's uh, compliance, and secondly, if the tenant then breached that compliance order, return to court to obtain an eviction order. Now, the CAT does not have jurisdiction to evict tenants from condominium from condominium units. But as I've explained today, uh, it has exclusive jurisdiction over a wide array of disputes. And so this begs the question, what, um, what does a condominium corporation do in the event that it has a legal dispute against a tenant that falls under the CAT's jurisdiction, but the condominium corporation also wants to evict that tenant? The law is not particularly clear on this issue, and it has not yet been played out before the courts, but in our view, it makes sense for the condominium corporation to take the following two steps. So first, obtain an, obtain an order enforcing the tenant's compliance at the CAT, and then if that tenant then breaches the CAT order enforcing uh, their compliance, proceed to court to seek an eviction order based on the tenant's breach of that CAT order, which in our view is effectively the same idea as a court order enforcing compliance that was previously required under Section 134. According to the Statutory Powers Procedures Act, the CAT order can be uh, filed with the court and is then equal to a court order for enforcement purposes. Again, this has not been played out uh, before the courts, but this, this approach is what makes most sense to us. Um, so with that, um, that concludes my comments on why uh, and when we should proceed to the CAT uh, versus court. Uh, Nancy, over to you.
Thanks so much, Victoria. So I think two big takeaways. One, we can have a crazy amount of overlapping jurisdictional issues. We can have the court, the cat, and the human rights tribunal. So when you have cases that have an interplay of all these types of things, you know, for example, pets uh, with uh, human rights situations, with potential compliance issues with a tenant, you may be ending up in a whole bit bit of a, a hot soup of, of where you should be going on that. So really think through your jurisdictional questions. The second one, I think Victoria really summed up nicely at the end is the good thing about the one of the great things about the CAD is not just good but great is we can get to the cat nice and quickly we can get a hearing pretty fast so if you've got a compliance issue and you're looking for a quick resolution particularly with a tenant go and get that enforcement order as a first step it gives you the tools you might need to take the next step which is going to court for the eviction so at least we have a nice way of moving quickly for that first step on the enforcement process uh, we also find that in many cases once you start the CAD application for enforcement, whether it's about smoking or whether it's about noise or other types of nuisances, um, then the occupant realize that this is, realizes this is a serious matter and it can often resolve simply by taking those first steps of getting the CAD application started. All right, so that leads us right into, well, I, I've got a CAD case. How do I best present my CAD case? So Melinda, I'm going to turn it over to you now. Perfect. Thanks, Nancy. So I have five key points about presenting your case at the CAT. These are mainly going to apply to the applicant, but some of them will also generally reply if you're the respondent as well. My first point is that make sure you take all reasonable steps to try and get your matter resolved between the parties directly first before you uh, start a CAT claim. So for example, if you're on for the condominium and you've got an owner with a nuisance dog that's been aggressive to other residents and the dog needs to be removed, try and deal with it directly with that owner first before jumping right into a cat claim. So it's a good idea to have um, the property manager send several warning letters to the owner and then also consider whether you need a warning letter from legal counsel as well first. The point of giving the, these warnings and trying to deal with it directly uh, between the parties you wanna ask for compliance, explain what is needed for compliance, and then warn in those initial letters that if compliance isn't achieved, the condominium's gonna to have to think about bringing the CAT claim. The bottom line is that we, what we're seeing in the decisions is the CAT does want to see, particularly on the condo side, that there's been some effort to try and resolve the matter between the parties before resorting to the cat, um, bringing a cat case. And the reality is that this taking these steps initially can help if you're on for the condominium in terms of uh, making a cost argument. So the condo can say, look, we, we tried everything to get this matter resolved between the parties before we brought the case, but that was just not possible. So we, we think we should be entitled um, to claim our costs for having to participate in this, in this claim. My second point is that the more contact information you can get for the parties that are involved in this, the dispute, the better. And I say this, so ideally you're gonna wanna get the email mailing address and phone number for the parties involved in the dispute. And I say this because some owners are not diligent or maybe they're purposely trying to be evasive in terms of updating the condominium with their contact information. So you don't always have a phone number 
or the current mailing address or even an email address. So if you get a chance, it, when you're in those initial discussions with the parties um, before you get to the CAT claim, if you get a chance, um, try and follow up for current contact information because it's gonna save you a lot of legwork once you start your case. The bottom line Nancy mentioned, once you start your case in the CAT system, then it's on you to serve the responding parties. And you're gonna do that if you have an email address for the respondents, you can insert it into this CAT system. And the CAT system actually really efficiently uh, serves notice on the respondents by email. So that's helpful. You're also gonna have to serve it by regular mail as well. So you, you do need the mailing address. And if you can get a phone number for the responding parties, that's helpful as well, because if the respondents aren't responding to the notices that you serve and joining the case, the CAT tribunal staff will actually reach out to the respondents by phone to warn them and say, look, if you don't join this proceeding, the proceeding is going to go ahead um, without you and a, a decision could be made against you without you present. So it gives them a really helpful warning that they either need to join or suffer the consequences. The bottom line here and, and my point is that you it's important to do what you can to make sure that the respondents are actually receiving notice. So they've been served and received actual notice of the claim. Because if they don't join the claim, as I said, it can proceed without them. And then you're gonna get a decision against them that's been made without them participating in the system. And the, the trick is that they actually have time after that decision is rendered to come back and say, hold on a second, let's reopen this case. Um, I want a chance to defend myself now. And so um, if you want to guard against the respondent have, having that opportunity to set aside the decision, you want to be able to show that you've done everything possible um, in terms of serving the notice of the claim on them to help sort of back them into a corner where they can't say, oh, I didn't know about that, uh, that case, so it should be set aside and I should have a chance to redefend it um, type of thing. So make sure you're properly serving all the respondents. And the way to do that is having as much contact info for them as possible. My third point is written evidence is best. And um, so basically, once you've served notice and you're going to get into the case a bit, you have to basically present your evidence. And because the CAT system is virtual, everything's taking place online, you have to obviously present your evidence online. And in our experience at our firm, most of the hearings that we've been involved in to date have happened in writing. I think there's certainly an opportunity to have an oral hearing if the adjudicator decides that's appropriate or if the parties ask for that. It's certainly um, an option to have an oral hearing, but most of what takes place in the CAT system is happening in writing. So written evidence is going to be key. You have to figure out how to effectively present your case um, with documents and in writing. I know it seems obvious, but when you're dealing with a noise complaint, you know, how do you, what the evidence of a noise complaint is the noise itself. So what are you going to present um, on the noise complaint? You really have to figure out what it's gonna to take to reduce your case into, um, into documents and a written record. So if you have a, a problem that's escalating and you think it's one that might wind up in front of the cat, it's important for you to start creating a written record of the problem. So for example, on a noise issue, you could have the complaining owner um, start to keep notes of the date 
and time that they're hearing the noise and a detailed description of the noise and that written, those written notes can form part of your evidence. If you have a telephone conversation with one of the parties that needs to form part of your evidence, you can always follow up the telephone call with a summary by email to that person. Bottom line, just keep all your emails, your correspondence, letters, pictures, uh, keep it all, try and keep it organized because the written evidence is king in these, uh, in these proceedings. Another point too is you're gonna have to keep, you're gonna have to make sure the condominium has their governing documents organized. So the declaration, bylaws and rules, all of that when you start a CAT case has to be uploaded to the system. And recently the CAT is asking for, at least in my experience, not just the bylaw that applies to the specific problem, they wanna see all, all of the condominiums bylaws uploaded. So having all of those documents scanned in and organized and ready to go will help you present your case more efficiently as well. My fourth point is keep a backup of everything that you do in the CAT system. So in stage one and two, as Nancy mentioned, the parties are gonna be negotiating and mediating together in the actual system. But when you get to stage three, all of that, everything that's taken place in stage one and two is hidden and you don't have access any, to it anymore. The point is that we don't want the adjudicator to be influenced, for example, by something that was said or relied on in stage one or two. So if you can keep a backup of that somehow, it's helpful. So you're wanna, gonna wanna keep um, a backup of all the evidence that you entered into the system, all of the documents and uh, pictures, whatever it was that you uploaded into the system. If you can save that somewhere in a nice, neat, organized way, it's gonna help you a lot when you get to stage three and you have to represent your evidence again. So you're not reinventing the wheel. And the same goes for keeping a note of how you framed your position in any communications that took place in stage one and two. If you keep a record of that or notes of that, then you're not reinventing the wheel again in stage three when you go to present your argument in writing. The other thing I wanted to tell you about keeping a backup in the system is that the, the CAT system can be a little bit glitchy sometimes. In my experience, I've had difficulties um, joining a case I've had to get help from the IT department. I've also had difficulties confirming in the system that I've served um, the respondents with the first and second warning letters that you have to send out serving notice of the case. Just know that um, obviously if you can keep a record of when you have been serving the notice, that's helpful. But you, you may at times have to reach out to the CAT IT to department to get help with these glitches. And it doesn't, it seems to be sort of a universal issue that can come up. So just know that it, it's not something you're doing. Sometimes it happens with their system. I think they're still working out the, the bugs. Overall, the system is uh, very efficient. It's a time consuming system to work in, but it's um, pretty efficient overall in terms of managing these matters. Um, my fifth point is lead costs from the start. So if you are a party that wants to seek their costs in the matter, um, I think actually only the applicant get a, gets a chance to put a description of the problem in when they start the case. So mainly this will apply for, this will apply for applicants, but make sure you're pleading that you want um, to claim your costs, either costs that were incurred pre-CAT or the costs incurred to participate in the CAT system and bring the CAT claim. Um, the reason why is that when you get to the hearing stage, 
the way that the hearing is structured, the adjudicator will structure the hearing based on how you've described the problem in that initial problem description. So if you've already given them a heads up that you're going to be arguing about your costs, that you want your costs in the beginning, they can then structure the hearing in a way that would allow you to make submissions on costs. Another point just to close that we've been thinking about um, with respect to costs, um, and Emily's going to touch on costs in more detail next, is that um, when you're in stage one, it's easy. That's when the parties are negotiating between themselves and there's no mediator involved. It's easy to sort of get caught up in just those actual back and forth discussions. You may want to flag for yourself to consider whether you want to make a formal offer to settle at that point. There's a way for you to do that in the system where you can present a formal offer and it gets memorialized in the CATS system there as a former formal offer. And I just mentioned that because um, you may consider it, and, and we're certainly considering it as a strategy and how we um, manage a lot of the cat files we're doing. It may help you later if you get to a hearing to argue about your costs. You may be able to um, say, well, look, we made a formal offer at the very beginning of this matter. Um, shouldn't we be, that wasn't accepted and uh, we've now sort of met or exceeded that offer. Shouldn't we be entitled to costs? So it's just a point to consider um, at the outset when you start a claim like this. So those are my four, five points, Nancy. Fabulous, Linda. And I think if I summarize uh, the overarching point is organization and preparation is key. In, exactly. In your exactly. Excellent. All right. And uh, Melinda also teed it up nicely for Emily, our next speaker. So Emily is going to talk to us about what we call pre-cat and in-cat costs. How do you uh, how do you try to do your best to try and achieve results on both those uh, forums? So Emily, I'm going to turn it over to you. Great. Thank you, Nancy. So, yep, as Nancy mentioned, I will be talking about recovery of costs at the CAT. Um, and as Nancy mentioned, these can generally be broken down into the two categories, pre-CAT costs and in-CAT costs. So I'll be talking about both from the perspective of the corporation as an applicant. So if the corporation is the one to start the application against an owner or an owner and a tenant. And speaking about recovering costs for the corporation. So first I'll start with pre-CAT costs. Pre-CAT costs uh, would be costs that the, co the corporation typically incurs to send legal letters to a unit owner who is breaching the corporation's governing documents or the condominium act. In other words, these are costs that the corporation incurs to try and address the non-compliance issues with an owner before commencing a CAT application. When it comes to making an order for pre-CAT costs, once you get to a tribunal hearing at the CAT, Section 1.44 of the Condo Act authorizes the tribunal to award up to $25,000 in costs as compensation for damages suffered. However, there are also other factors in addition to this uh, section in the Condo Act that the tribunal will take into consideration. So what we're seeing is that in some cases, the tribunal will rely on indemnification provisions within the corporation's supporting governing documents, whether that be the declaration, the bylaw, or the rules, to award pre-CAT or enforcement type costs. Another factor that the CAT will take into consideration is whether the corporation made any good faith attempts to resolve the dispute with an owner before involving legal counsel and incurring the associated legal costs. 
Like Melinda mentioned, it's always a good idea to make efforts to resolve the situation or the matter before going to the cat. In a number of decisions the CAT has released this year, this principle of acting reasonably or making good faith attempts to try and resolve uh, the situation between the parties before advancing to CAT appears to be a major consideration in the CAT's assessment of a cost award. For instance, in the decision York Condominium Corporation 229 and Roxon, a CAT decision from this year respecting uh, excessive noise caused by an owner, the tribunal awarded full pre-CAT as well as in cat costs to the corporation where the owner willfully refused to comply with the corporation's rules, despite numerous legal letters that have been sent, and also the owner refused to participate in the cat proceeding itself. So the cat relied on those factors in awarding and making the cost award at the tribunal hearing. Now on the opposite end of the spectrum, in a case Wellington Condominium Corporation number 244 and Polly, Another decision on an owner's breach of a dog prohibition within the corporation's declaration, the CAT awarded the condominium only a very small portion of its CAT costs. In that case, the tribunal stated that the condo had made little effort to engage directly with the non-compliant tenant before commencing the CAT application. In this decision, the CAT also referenced the existence of a relevant indemnification provision within the declaration as a factor in the tribunal's cost award. So again, these two decisions demonstrate the importance of acting reasonably when dealing with an owner's non-compliance, particularly in situations where the unit owner themselves may be acting unreasonably and the corporation trying to take, uh, take steps to try and resolve the matter before incurring legal costs uh, to proceed to the CAT. Now moving on to in-CAT costs. When it comes to in-CAT costs, which are, co which are costs associated with the CAT proceeding itself, the CAT appears to rely primarily on its rules of practice in making these types of cost awards. So pri prior to January of this year, the CAT rules stated that the CAT generally will not order that one party reimburse the, the other for legal, uh, legal fees or disbursements incurred in the course of the proceeding unless there were exceptional reasons to do so. Under that rule, there were a small number of cases where the CAT did find exceptional circumstances existed and awarded costs in the matter. However, there was still some confusion as to what exactly exceptional circumstances meant. So on January 1st, 2002, the particular rule in the CAT's rules of practice respecting costs was amended and now reads as follows. The CAT generally will not order one party to reimburse another party for legal fees or disbursements incurred in the course of the proceeding. However, where appropriate, the CAT may order a party to pay to another party all or part of their costs including costs that were directly related to a party's behavior that was unreasonable, undertaken for an improper purpose, or that caused a delay or additional expense. So this definition does provide us with a little bit more clarity about circumstances, circumstances under which uh, in-cat costs may be awarded. Along with that January amendment to the CAT's rules of practice, the CAT also released a document called a practice direction on the issue of awarding costs. Among other things, this practice direction states that in deciding whether or not to order costs in a case, the CAT can consider the following factors. The conduct of each party and the representatives, whether or not the case was filed in bad faith or for an improper purpose, the potential impact of a cost award upon the parties, the attempts by the parties to resolve the dispute and or avoid the claim, 
So coming back again to the reasonable steps that the corporation would have taken prior to commencing a CAD application, that's an important key consideration. Um, any failure of a party to comply with a previous order, any relevant provisions in the condominium's governing documents. However, to this point, we note that the practice direction makes it clear that any such provision won't be considered determinative on the question of entitlement to costs. And lastly, any other factors the CAT might consider relevant. And as for determining the amount of costs to be awarded, some factors that the CAT may consider include some or all of the factors that I previously noted regarding whether to award a CAT, uh, a CAT cost award, um, the nature and complexity of the issues in the dispute in the CAT case, whether the costs are reasonable and were reasonably incurred. Since the above amendment and the practice direction came into effect, the CAT has released a number of decisions which show the tribunal's increased willingness to award in-CAT costs in appropriate cases. So in our view, that's a really good sign. In summary, the law on recovery of costs at CAT is not yet definitive, and we do see a trend from the CAT to award in-CAT costs where appropriate. What is clear, however, is that a key consideration in the tribunal's assessment of costs is the reasonable conduct of the parties, both prior to and during the CAT proceeding itself. And furthermore, a strong indemnification provision continues to be an important factor in the tribunal's cost award decisions. And that's all for me. Thanks so much, Emily. So again, if you are a director of a condominium corporation or a manager of a condominium corporation, every attempt you can make, I think, to try and work with the owner before you get to CAT uh, to show that you've acted reasonably, to reach out, to try and offer solutions. I think those are really helpful things that you want to be doing at the outset. And if you're an owner, uh, make sure you're responding to the condominium if they're reaching out to you. Make sure you're acting in good faith and trying to work with the corporation uh, to resolve your issue. Would that be a fair summary, Emily? Yep, absolutely. Okay, terrific. Well, thank you so much, Emily. So folks, there's so much to think about with the cat. Uh, and I'm going to tell you that there's even more to be talked about at the upcoming CCI Eastern Ontario Condo Conference. I'm going to share my screen for a quick second. If you still have a ton of questions about the condo conference, well, you are in luck. You're going to see that we have at the CCI Condo Conference on November 4th, we have an entire session here on enforcement, talking about the CAT and various other issues. Not just that, I'm going to put my CCI director's hat on here and say we have a whole fantastic day planned of all sorts of information that you can hear about. So we invite you to we invite you to enjoy, join us from DHA. We're all going to be there on November 4th for an in-person conference, the first in-person conference that we've had since 2019. We do have large rooms set up, uh, so there's lots of spacing available. Um, so hopefully we'll see a lot of our uh, condo community in person for the first time on November 4th. We invite you to join us. We also have a director certificate program, as you can see here, that is running on November 4th and 5th. So if you click here, you can learn more about that as well. It's a two-day director certificate program uh, that we're going to be starting. It's a brand new thing in all of Ontario that we're running for the first time. So go ahead and check that out on November 4th and 5th. We do hope to see everybody at the conference or registering for the director's course. I'll stop my share here. Uh, with respect to today's presentation, if you missed any parts of it, not to worry, we will have 
a podcast as per usual. So stay tuned in the next coming weeks. Today's session will be put onto a podcast and you'll be able to listen to that podcast um, on our website. So just go to our website, search for the podcast and you'll find it there. We hope that you enjoyed today's session. I know we had a great time putting it together and I really hope we're going to see a whole bunch of you on November 4th at the upcoming CCI East Ontario Conference. Be safe, stay well, and it's sunny out there. Enjoy your day. Thank you for listening to this episode. You can subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app. Conopedia is brought to you by Davidson Hu Allen, a boutique condominium law firm servicing Eastern Ontario. You can find more about our firm on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, or on our website at davidsonconolaw.ca. This podcast is for information purposes only and is not intended to provide legal opinion or advice, which cannot be given without knowing the facts of a specific situation. Use of this podcast does not establish a solicitor and client relationship. The intro and outro music is provided by Purple Planet. You can find them at purple-planet.com.